The Thomistic Institute's Study Abroad program is currently accepting applications for the spring of 2023. Our program, Ancient and Medieval Rome, Crossroads of Intellectual Traditions, brings university students from around the world to the heart of the eternal city of Rome. They'll live just minutes from the Colosseum, and they'll study at the world-renowned Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. Visit ThomisticInstitute.org forward slash Rome to learn more. Financial aid and scholarships are available to qualifying students. This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Our topic this evening is the role of poetry in the Christian life. Um, and to make sure that you're kind of tracking everything that's going on, I'm going to do the very undergraduate thing of giving you my thesis, right? So what is our thesis here, right? What are we tracking? What's going on? Um, my thesis is twofold. First, uh, poetry as measured word is the mode of speech most like Christ, the eternal logos. Second, because of the mimetic nature of the human poet, uh, of the human person, Poetry plays a central role both historically in the work of salvation and personally in the conformity of the human person to Christ. So um, that, that's a lot, right? It's two big divisions there. And before I even take you into the first one, um, we're going to have a, a bit of a digression, right? Because I'm not sure, uh, talking with some of you on, on the way, it seems everyone here uh, Wonderfully, it's a wonderful idea that everyone seems to be studying biblical studies as a minor, no matter what major you all emerge with. Yeah, a lot of nodding heads. This is great. So there's a lot of things that you guys are exposed to. But one of the things I'm not sure that you're exposed to is actually poetry. So before I talk about poetry and what it is in the Christian life, I thought I would share a poem with you. All right. So this is a poem by Father, Father Gerard Manley Hopkins. Um, it's called Pied Beauty. Glory be to God for dappled things for skies of couple color as a brinded cow, for rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh fire coal, chestnut falls, finches wings, landscape plotted and pieced, fold, fallow, and plow, and all trades their gear and tackle and trim. All things counter, original, spare, strange, whatever is fickle, freckled, who knows how, with swift, slow, sweet, sour, a dazzle dim, he fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. And so now, I don't know, again, I don't know the last time you might have been exposed to poetry. might have been in elementary school reading Shel Silverstein, or maybe you've uh, unconsciously imbibed poetry through the Psalms or other books in the Bible, but I don't know how many of you are running around reading Hopkins or Keats or, or Auden, okay? Um, what I find interesting about this poem, and it, it's going to actually relate back to our, our first thesis, is that at the end of the poem, he presents to us this paradox. That is, the entirety of the poem has been a discussion of the variegated nature of beauty in the world. And yet, when we read the end of the poem, he fathers forth whose beauty is past change, praise him. So, this is the, the paradox of beauty. In created particulars, its perfection arises from variety. In the creator, who in addition to being truth and goodness is also unity, beauty is singular and unchanging. 
And since, again, uh, you, you asked for it, this is a, a talk with the Thomistic Institute, I'm gonna um, slam you. This is the most amount of text we're gonna get, okay? But here we have St. Thomas Aquinas on beauty. Now there's not many portions of St. Thomas Aquinas that actually touch on beauty. There's only two major passages in the Summa Theologiae, and there's a number of other um, works that, that tangentially relate to beauty. Um, but right here, the fifth question of the Summa Theologiae in the first part, right? So the very beginning, as he's trying to understand who is God from a philosophical perspective, he says, beauty and goodness in a thing are identical fundamentally, for they are based upon the same thing, namely the form. And consequently, goodness is praised as beauty, but they differ logically for goodness properly relates to the appetite, goodness being what all things desire, and therefore it has the aspect of an end, the appetite being a kind of movement towards a thing. On the other hand, beauty relates to the cognitive faculty, for beautiful things are those which please when seen. Hence, beauty consists in due proportion. Again, it's underlined bold, all caps, um, and he didn't do that, I did that, right? So it's very important, right? Beauty consists in due proportion. For the senses delight in things duly proportioned, as in what is after their own kind. Because even sense is a sort of reason, just as every cognitive faculty. Now, since knowledge is by assimilation and similarity relates to form, beauty properly belongs to the nature of a formal cause. And again, um, driving up here and getting a sense of, of where are, you guys might be in terms of your studies, um, I'm going to go ahead and assume that we've perhaps not everyone's been exposed to Aristotle and the idea of the four causes. Um, if, if everyone has been exposed to Aristotle and the four causes, um, please raise your pitchforks and just storm me. No, okay, uh, let the record show that no one has tackled me. Um, so we, we need some sort of refresher or introduction to what we mean by the four forms, right? Um, so right here I have a clicker, okay? Uh, and the four forms are material, formal, efficient, and final, right? Now the material form of the clicker is really simple. It's a, um, oh, it's not exactly the world's cheapest clicker, but it's made out of plastic, right? It has some silicon parts, right? This is the stuffness that goes into it. Now there's lots of other things that are also made out of plastic and there are lots of other things that have silicon chips in them, right? It also has a, a wonderful little laser pointer that I use to you know, distract the kids when I'm, anyway. So that's its material cause. The formal cause, Right? It, it does, again, as the, the, the word would imply, it is the form, right? But it's also the qualities of it. So the formal cause is not only the shape of the clicker, which is a very ergonomic shape, right? Again, fits in my hand very, very nicely. But also it's, it's black, right? As opposed to orange. Now, is that essential to it? We'll leave that aside for the moment. Okay, so there's certain things. And of course, there are other things about like the form of a clicker. It could be the right shape, but Again, if this clicker were, um, let's say, one millimeter in size, right, or 20 feet, if I had a 20-foot clicker, right, I don't think the TSA would have allowed me through the airport with that, right? Okay, so formal cause. There's an efficient cause as well. It gets very complicated when you're dealing with something like a Kensington clicker uh, because there's lots of efficient causes. There's the person who designs the the uh, the, 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 the technology. There's the people who do the, the harvesting of the materials that go into it. 
There's the people who actually manufacture it. And do I think that anyone actually manufactured it? There's no such thing as like an artisan clicker, right? There's not like a hipster thing where if I go to like to the right shop in Philly, I can go get like this like artisanal clicker, like just wood grained and like, no, it's a machine made, right? So the efficient cause is kind of two removes. That is someone had to design the robot that then actually assembles the clicker. There's probably also someone who designed the robot that designed the robot, but we're getting to like infinite regress at that point. But what you understand is that ultimately there's people who make these things, yeah? Finally, we arrive at the final cause of the clicker, right? The final cause of the clicker is, for, again, I, I, if you ever get this, by the way, I'm doing you guys a great favor because anyone else who talks about philosophy will talk about chairs. And after 20 years of hearing people talk about the formal, official, material, and final causes of chairs, I sat down and I was like, okay, we need to talk about something besides chairs because <laughs> we've been doing that since Plato. All right, so we're talking about this clicker, right? Um, the final cause of the clicker, I can use this, the clicker for a lot of things, right? Um, for example, uh, as I said, I could use the clicker. Um, I have a cat, her, I, I live in Nebraska. Her cat, the cat's name is Willa Cather. Uh, actually, no, it's Willa Catter. Uh, and she loves to just you know, chase that, the, the, the laser pointer around, right? But again, like if I really wanted to do that for my cat, I don't have to buy this mid-range clicker, right? I don't have to drop $30, I could just get a $1 dollar store laser pointer, right? Um, so the, the point of this clicker is to move my slides back and forth, right? Wowing you with my use of technology, right? Um, on the other hand, there's lots of other things that we could do that are not appropriate for it, right? So for example, that door I heard in the back of the lecture hall on the one side is jammed, right? It doesn't work properly. So if we wanted people to be able to come into this lecture, uh, and additional people, right? we could then go open that door and I could jam the clicker into the side of it and wedge it in there and keep the door physically open. But then that's not the final cause of the clicker, right? The final cause of the clicker, again, same thing with yourselves, right? You all have material, formal, uh, final and efficient causes, right? And, and all things can be described that way, except for, thank you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is what Aquinas is coming to when he's talking in the, the prima pars about this, right? So wrapping this digression up, of, of bringing you up to speed on what we mean on causes, right? Beauty then, uh, as it says, right, relates to the, um, the formal cause and goodness relates to the final, okay? So it's good that you exist. The form of you is beautiful. And yet at the same time, um, this other thing that I want you to, to, to wrap on is that your beauty consists in due proportion, but you are a very strange thing because unlike all the other things that I can see in this world, you have both a body and a soul that is spirit, has a rational faculty. That means that you're made in the image and likeness of God, God who from the beginning was spirit, which means that your beauty can't just consist in you being able to appear on America's Next Top Model, right? That your beauty and the hierarchy of your beauty is actually something that is beyond your mere physical form. Okay. <clears throat> so already um, you can see I'm making in this talk a number of philosophical and aesthetic assumptions. Uh, for example, what we've covered so far is that there is this Hellenic idea of the transcendentals that is derived from Greek philosophy of the good, the true, the beautiful, and the one, 
And again, uh, like other things to point out that you're not getting from, again, other people normally is that there's sort of a, a trend in the, in the 20th century and early 20th century that we forgot about oneness and unity as a transcendental, but that goes back to what it means for God to be beautiful. And we also have at least assumed, for now at least, that there is a God of the philosophers, right? Um, not necessarily a Christian God yet, but a God or a being, or rather being itself, right? And there's a distinction there between a being and being, right? Where one finds these transcendental, transcendentals in themselves. Uh, I understand that there are many who do not share these assumptions, and so if you want to like have at me at the end of this uh, talk, I'll shut up at a certain point when you go into Q&A and you can ask me how dare I assume this, that, or the other. But for now, we're just going to assume that so that we can move on. Okay. The, the next assumption I'm going to make is, is, a, is a stronger one, is that we know from, from John 1.1 that Jesus Christ is the Logos. And in Thomas Aquinas's lesser known work, his commentary to the Gospel of John. One of the key things I would, I would point you to in understanding this is that, again, one of the most famous passages in the New Testament, in the beginning was the Word. And yet, what do we mean by the Word? For Thomas Aquinas, what he has to understand is that God as Word is not fashioned after Word according to human capacity. Rather than our Word is modeled off of the Word. And so if you go, and again, I encourage you to like, if your library doesn't have it, the librarian would love to, again, librarians are always looking for people to put, put in book purchase requests. So put in a book purchase request for the commentary on the Gospel of John by St. Thomas Aquinas, right? And what you'll find there is that he makes a distinction, a Trinitarian distinction in the word, right? That the Father conceives of it, Jesus Christ is the word, and the Holy Spirit is the breathing forth of that word, Right? And so the angels then, since God is spirit and since angels are spirit, partake of that word in a more perfect way than us. That is, they instantaneously can conceive of the idea. For us and you and I, I mean, the, the, the problem that this guy's stuck with, right? You're sitting here for 45 minutes listening to me drone on. The thing that angels and God can do is instantaneously absorb all of it in a single word. Sorry to single you out. But it was kind of cool. No? Now you're going to, okay. <laughs> so then again, there's another distinction I want to make for you in terms of understanding the word of God and then our words and when it comes to poetry. So I'm going to um, jump over to this idea that um, what this ultimately ends up in is the idea that we find in St. Augustine that he articulates when understanding Jesus Christ as the word of God, he says, only the lover sings, right? Only the lover sings. So it is a loose translation of Augustine's Latin phrase, cantare amantis est. Um, and you guys study some Latin here? I know we get some Greek. No? Okay. All right. So uh, there are two things about the Latin. First, amantis is a great example of the genitive of characteristic, right? It's of the person who loves to do this thing, okay? And second, the translation takes certain liberties. Strictly speaking, St. Augustine is saying it is characteristic of the lover to sing. That is, by the nature, if you are a lover, you will be singing. So the nature and the final cause of the clicker is to click, right? If you love and are made in the fashion and image of God who is love, then you will sing. Okay, so that's something that's going on there that I think is very important for understanding poetry. 
So if anyone here is already familiar with the work of Joseph Pieper, I presume it is from um, Joseph Pieper's much more famous work, uh, Leisure, the Basis of Culture. For anyone who has read that book, uh, I want you to go out and get, again, there's like a laundry list of books I want you to go to the library with and request at the end of this lecture. Um, So I'm not going to just rehash Leisure, the Basis of Culture. What I want to talk about is this other work, uh, which is titled Only the Lover Sings, okay? Now, there are many different ways um, to look at art, and what Pieper understands in Only the Lover Sings is that there are three kinds of leisure that we as human beings can pursue that are in accordance with our nature as made in the image and likeness of God. First is philosophy, which I assume is the reason why many of you are here. The second is theology, which is a higher form of that. Are you making fun of the hand gestures? I do a lot of that. I'm... Oh, chef's kiss. No, I'm from New Jersey, so I have this thing that my wife always makes fun of, where I, I constantly, I'm on the East Coast, I'm among friends. Um, so uh, next we, so we have philosophy, right? And we have theology and contemplation, but also art is able to accomplish this. And it's one of the things that's not often put in communication between philosophy and theology. So in the broadest categories, we can say that there are the visual arts, the musical arts, and then there are arts that deal with words. So as us as sub-creators, and God is the creator, and so us living in accordance with the image and likeness of God, so acting as he does to create, words then are the way that we can create and be like God. So today we speak of the written word, uh, but I will remind you that for the majority of humanity, even to this day, um, words are are spoken, not written. And it is the written which is only a token of the spoken. So as Plato spoke of it, the written word is a substitute for memory, for living words and living persons. So in in that way, again, this this has an indication of like the sacramentality of the Bible, right, as the word of God, right? The word made flesh. But yet at the same time, there's a difference there in terms of sacramentality. All right, so to return to my point, in Pieper's book, he considers only music and the visual arts, right? So it's, it's kind of a, um, one of the things I'm most dissatisfied about because I love Joseph Pieper and he promises to tell us about everything it means to, to, to contemplate God through art. And then he, he stops short of actually giving us anything to do with poetry or words or literature. So poetry, that wonderful servant who straddles the wor- word, world of both music and words, I do not mean, of course, the endless doggerel composed today by any teenager with a liberal use of the return key on the keyboard, which some of you might have done when you were in high school making your poetry, right? Which is it poetry? I, what I mean there is that there has to be a certain versification. There has to be musicality to the words, right? Again, as we heard with Father Hopkins, right? Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of couple color as a printed cow. Right? There's a rhythm and a musicality to it that's missing from what today many people consider poetry. So with words, music is fitted to the intelligence of the human person. So again, it's one of these things that harmonizes and makes the image whole. So you're not just using certain features of your person. You're using the whole of the person as God made you, right? Body, mind, will, appetites, all of it functioning together as one. And what I would say about that, again, is that that's different and unique from Again, the contemplative acts that bring us closer to God. With philosophy and theology, there's not a lot of philosophy and theology that employ the whole of the human person, right? There's not like, uh, except for like that Monty Python skit where they're doing like philosophers playing soccer, but even then they're not doing philosophy, they're doing soccer, right? 
But if I'm engaged in poetry, I'm using my whole person. And not just that, I am yielding of my person to the words of another person. Which again, like for, for anyone who again is thinking biblically, there's huge signification of understanding conforming ourselves to Christ, right? So that is of poetry, we're preparing ourselves in a moral way for allowing someone, the word, to enter into us and to speak through us. Okay. So now we're reaching the part in the lecture where, um, you know, you're, you're thinking this is a lot about Joseph Pieper, and, um, and there's, a, there's, there's some other things that you were promised that I haven't delivered yet, so I'm going to try to get to them. So um, there's much I could say about St. Augustine. I want to return to him in poetry. If you look, for example, in St. Augustine's Confessions, you will find that the Psalms, that is the poetry of the Bible, constitute the bulk of his biblical and textual references. They are the through line and provide him the words when he finds them lacking. I should say, as an aside to, to whet your appetite for reconsidering the importance of the Psalms, and again, this is understanding, like, when Jesus is picking out scripture when he's on the cross, right? The scripture that he quotes when he's on the cross is poetry scripture. That is of the scripture, right? He, there's many different representatives of form, right? We have narratives, we have historical books, we have wisdom literature, and yet at the same time, in this consummate moment of the act of salvation, the word speaks through poetry. He doesn't give a philosophical dialogue on what love is. He recites the Psalms. So, um, look, this is, again, another Callahan digression, but I want to look uh, now at two sermons of St. Augustine and how they reinforce what I'm trying to, to propose. So both of these sermons reflect on the opening of Psalm 149. Um, and so uh, that song, is, gosh, that's the wrong slide. I'm so sorry about that. Uh, Cantate Dominum Canticum Novum. So as we might say in English, sing to the Lord a new song. So now St. Augustine also wrote in, song, in his sermon, uh, Sermon 336, when he was dedicating a new church. He recalls this psalm, and he recalls for the congregants the inspiration of Psalm 149, which was the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem after, after the Babylonian exile. As St. Augustine puts it, the liberal context of the song is that a new song befits a new temple. In a Christological reading, a new song befits not just a new temple, but a new commandment. And that new commandment is love. And as St. Augustine says, it is even more fitting and congruent then because singing is proper to love. And now the nature of the commandment matches our response. That is the, um, the ontological fulfillment and change affected by Jesus Christ in the incarnation is that we are made in the image and likeness of God, but specifically the second person of the Trinity, who is the Word. So if the Word became flesh, then there's a conformity of us to the image and likeness of God, which is even greater in potential by Christ's incarnation. And since Christ was incarnate, right, the second person of the Trinity, who is the Word, that means that our final cause has changed. So again, Adam and Eve, what's the final cause for them? They screwed it up pretty fast. What was their final cause? Yeah. Well, well, it, it's a parameter, right? But what was the what was the uh, the plan? Yeah. Not to, that the plan was okay. <laughs> they're put in the garden, right? And again, through their fault, they they're forced to leave the garden. But again, they would have stayed in the garden. 
So again, um, we're coming up on the Easter liturgies soon. And the Easter liturgies, I don't know, uh, again, like what you, you read or what you might recite, but there's a beautiful long um, uh, a hymn, which is sung in the Catholic Church, where it talks about the Felix culpa, right? It's a happy fault that Adam and Eve fell because now our end is not just to live in paradise, but God himself has descended, right, and is raising us up, right? And as St. Athanasius, the great uh, uh, Eastern father says, right, God became man so that we might become God. And so now our new end is to live in conformity with the word. And so now our final cause is to cantare. Our, our, our final cause is to sing because that's what the word does. That's what we're called to do. Okay, so at this point, I've, I've had a couple of digressions that have, have off-tracked us in terms of time. But you, if you remember, way back when, there was an original second thesis. And that second thesis related to the, the nature of human person as a mimetic animal. So at this point in the lecture, um, I'm going to take a sort of criticism of everything that I've been saying. That is, everything so far has been constructed upon certain fundamental assumptions about the nature of the human person, right? So again, first part of the lecture, we made assumptions about God, and we talked about that. Now you're, you're also saying, well, wait a second. That's assuming what the person, the human person is made for and how that person functions. So... Um, for Aquinas, he's dealing with um, three understandings of the human person that are derived from Aristotle. So um, what I'm going to say here, uh, for time's sake, is um, the man is a creature composed of body and soul. Further, some uh, hallmark greeting card definition of a soul is not what we are, right? Um, what I mean by soul is that we, the Aristotelian conception, that the soul is the living form of the body, the animating principle. You cannot weigh it, you cannot see it, but you know a body that has been separated from its soul because it no longer is merely corporeal, but it's now just a corpse. Uh, to this, I'd add that all living creatures have souls. So there are distinct faculties of soul by which uh, ancients uh, distinguished vegetative from animal souls, um, capable of sensation and motion. Now the discovery of modern science that plant life has sensory and even some motor capabilities only destroys the application of Aristotle's framework, right? That is vegetative souls, animal souls, rational souls, okay? But at the same time, I think the distinction is still a useful framework for us to understand the faculties of you, that is, you have a vegetative capacity, right? Um, I'm going to slip uh, through the slides here a little bit. You have vegetative capacity, right? You're able to reproduce, to grow, and you, you derive nutrients. Now, no one's really uh, in, in awe of the vegetative powers of your soul. No one congratulates you on digesting a burrito, okay? <laughs> um, it's, it's, you know, that's, that's as being as good as, like a, a, as a rat, okay? Rats eat food and they digest it, okay? So that's not really your final cause. We have animal powers, and those animal powers um, are the sense powers of locomotion, uh, sensation, imagination, memory, right? So that is... Um, you know, dogs can not only sense things, but they can imagine things, right? So that is, who has a dog? Okay, um, if you're cooking bacon, right, your dog is in the other room. It can smell the bacon, and then it imagines bacon. That is, if you indulge your dog in things that your vet probably would tell you not to feed your dog, right, the dog might have a sense of memory of bacon, and then it imagines future bacon. So it smells it, but it doesn't see it. And so, but it conjures up in its imagination the sight and the taste of bacon. And then it pursues the bacon, and then it like knocks someone over, someone's plate over, and then it eats the bacon, and then it further like encourages them in that, okay? You have that capacity too, congratulations. But again, uh, it's not the highest faculty of you. We also have rational powers, um, both intellect and will, 
right? And there are certain virtues associated with that. Um, and again, for time, um, what I'm going to do is, is sort of wrap us up into the three um, ways that Aristotle understands the human person, right? That is, man is a rational animal. That is, he has a speculative intellect, as St. Thomas Aquinas would say. That is, our object of our speculative intellect is that we can grasp the truth. We have a practical intellect. That is, we are our political animals. And the object of both our politics and our practice of our mind is the good, right? Directed to action under the aspect of truth, understanding of things to be done or made, right? So again, uh, as a Catholic here, I would say that speculative intellect is sacred scripture, the creed, dogma, theology, catechisms, coming to talks like this, right? We're participating in things that are exercising our speculative intellect, right? The rational faculty of the human person. We have a political aspect as well, which we, we exercise when we come together in worship, right? So that's the political animal of you. And again, understanding that politics, and this is the misconception of, of young undergraduates who go and read uh, Aristotle today, that when the politics are not just coming together and voting on things, that the highest function of politics are things that are useless. That is, liturgies, right? Coming together to worship are useless things, which actually means that they're closer to God, right? Because God is not a book's bookend, right? That useful things are in some ways of a lower order. In the 21st century, it's very hard for us to understand that because we're used to talking about things as being useful. I have little children. And aside here, if any of you are Anglicans, there's an Anglican clergyman, uh, Reverend Audrey, who wrote the um, Thomas the Tank Engine series, right? What's the highest praise? Again, I'm, I'm shocked at this, right? A, 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 a pastor actually wrote a, a children's series where the highest praise of anyone is what? You're really useful, right? And if you're not really useful, you're going to be sent to the smelters. God, now, again, like, I think most Christians would not agree with that, that God doesn't look at you as something that's merely useful. You are good in and of yourself because you're made in the image and the likeness of God whose intrinsic goodness does not depend upon some external reality. All right, um, so I'm going to, again... Uh, skip here for time to get to, to something really important, though. This third thing that we don't talk about a lot, right? If you read Aristotle and you read modern commentaries, you take a class in Aristotle, a lot of people talking about the, the rational faculty of the human person and the political faculty, right? Man is a rational animal. Man is a political animal. One of the things that we're forgetting is that there's a third definition for the human person that's given in Aristotle. And that third definition of the human person is two slides back. The human person differs from other animals because it is the most mimetic, even accomplishing its learning through mimesis. And again, I'm going to make another assumption in a show of hands. People know what mimesis is? No. Mimesis is imitation. Now, when I imitate something, I'm not replicating. It's not exact copy. That is, if I caricature someone or I imitate someone, you and I would all understand that if you're going to imitate some friend of yours, like a, no, no, not a friend, a professor, right? You all have a class with a certain professor who has maybe this eccentricity, right? Now, this one eccentricity might come up only like once every other class. But when you imitate that professor for your friends for a laugh, because I know you guys make fun of us, that eccentricity that only comes out once every couple of weeks is going to be featured once every 30 seconds when you're imitating that professor, right? And so... Mimesis is not merely a copying. Mimesis is a kind of understanding. 
right? That is, it comprehends and it orders and it makes intelligible something. And so we imitate in order to learn. So you guys are, are not in a phase of your life where you're going to see this, but very soon when you graduate from college and you start your own families and you have children, that's very apparent, right? How do children learn to talk? How do children learn to walk? How do children learn to do any sort of physical exercise or activities, right? It's mimetically. Now, how does this relate then to poetry? Right, this definition that Aristotle gives us of the man as the most mimetic animal is found in his poetics. And that is what poetry does. In its subject matter and in its presentation, poetry is a mimetic experience. So relating it back to the Christian life and understanding this, and, and the slide I have to, to, as we're discussing this is one of the, the early Eastern Orthodox icons of the creation of man. And by the way, it relates to what I'm about to say, so I'll just comment. You notice what's, what's very strange about the creation of man here. Okay, which one, there, there are two human persons I see. Right? Uh, which one's Adam? It's the one on the right. But don't they look like the same person? Again, like we have this Renaissance thing in art where we come and we start to um, focus the idea of the creation through God the Father. And so we have this Renaissance ideation of like old bearded guy floating through like the cloud with all the cherubs and stuff like that. But again, a theologically much richer experience and richer image is what you have here in the Eastern Orthodox tradition of, you know, again, if you're going to physically represent God creating a human person, why not bring in Jesus Christ? That is the second Adam. It's a Pauline understanding here in this image. So when it comes then to relating this back of poetry in the Christian life and the mimetic nature of the human person, if we are the most mimetic animal and Christ is the one that we are meant to imitate, and if Christ is word, and not just word, logos is ordered word, so it's not just random stuff. It's not muthos. Muthos is just random storytelling. It's sort of garbage that I'm giving you guys right now, right? But he is ordered logical words. And what is more ordered and logical in its word than poetry? What employs more of the human person than poetry? The idea here then is that in man's mimetic capacity, we can use poetry in worship to imitate Christ in order to become like Christ. That is, right now, this semester, I'm teaching Dante in the Divine Comedy. And one of the things that we have to conceive of what eternity is going to be like with God, um, there are some people, um, rather sad people, who believe that eternity with God would just be like, I don't know, what, like one long chat fest or something like that, just sitting down having a beer or something, right? But if you look at the theological conceptions of what the beatific vision is like and entering into the second person of the through, through the, the salvation afforded us by the second person of the Trinity. Again, most of the images that we have are singing and dancing, right? And that song is poetry, right? And that, that, that song is entering into the life of worship of God, and it's, it's teaching us to be in his presence in that mimetic capacity. So in that sense, 
what I, what I will look back on is the last sort of thing I'm going to leave you with is that um, there are nine muses in, in Greek mythology. Do you guys get any of this sort of stuff in some of your classes? Greek, a little Greek myth? A, a little bit. So I got shrug on the shoulders from my red hooded guy. Um, so the nine muses are the daughters of God, Zeus, right? And of Nemasune. Nemasune is the Greek uh, goddess of memory. So again, another intellectual capacity and faculty of the human person, right? That is, memory is what gives birth to our imagination. That is, I can't imagine things if I don't have some sort of sense of memory. That is, I'm a human person, body, soul, composite. I learn through my senses, right? So that no matter what I imagine, I have to have some sort of sensory experience that helps me to imagine that, right? So the first person who talked about unicorns, right? They had a memory, a sensation that they remembered of horses, and a memory or a sensation of horns. And they have a memory of oneness, okay? Put that together and you have a unicorn, right? Now you can add a bunch of other things like that, right? Um, you can put them in like a, I don't know, what, a 76ers jersey and something like that, maybe flying over a gold mountain, all these other things. But they all rely on having some sort of sense of memory. What I'm proposing, and a few other people have proposed this lately, is to go back to this idea of the capacities of the human person in order to actually believe. What's required for us to believe in God, right? And this is where this is, I believe, is going to pay off for us. That is, we can come to college and we can exercise and cultivate our speculative intellect, that is, our rational capacities, right? Which is, again, part of our image and likeness to God. We can come to worship, and that gives us moral practice in the practical intellect. The practical intellect is what tells you that it's better for you to come together to worship on Sunday than to just sleep in and doom scroll through Instagram or, or envy Instagram, whatever you do, right? And then we also have, I would argue, an imaginative intellect, right? Which its proper object is the beautiful. And again, the way that we cultivate this and, and, and do this is through the mimetic capacity of the human person. That is the mimetic faculty is what allows us to aim at the beautiful. That is God created all of this in the beginning. We imitate it. Through that imitation, we then perfect ourselves and so that we can come to have real belief. Um, and again, there's something real at stake here. That is, the, the kind and mode of worship that we have and the kind of belief that we have. I'm sure that you've met a lot of people who have intellectual understanding of God, right? They have like a grasp philosophically of God, and yet they live a very different moral life. On the other hand, you've probably met people who cultivate too much of the practical side of their intellect without the speculative. People who love to come to worship, but actually don't want to talk about or think through what it actually means when we say God. Right? And there's a false dichotomy here, right, between the practical and the speculative. And like anything that's a physical object, like that stand out there, right, the reason the stand can stand is not because of its two legs, but because of its three. And I would argue, and it's only a metaphor for this, but I would argue for you in your belief, there has to be that third prong. That is, what do we come to do when we worship is we come together in poetry and literature to fill our imaginative intellect with images and capacities so that when, for example, 
I am unable to give words to what God is giving me, literature and poetry can supply that. So, for example, like um, I used to ride my bike to work, uh, and it was a beautiful spring day. We're getting some beautiful spring days right now. It's a little overcast today, but there's going to be some beautiful ones ahead, right? And you don't know what to say, and you just turn to your buddy like, man, it's really beautiful. Yeah, totally, bro. Right? <laughs> if you do that, right, then you feel like this incompleteness, and there's like something, it's like a, it's like a corn kernel in your tooth. Like It's just like there's something more I'm experiencing, and I don't know how to articulate it. I can speculatively understand it. I can practically understand it. Because speculative understands that speculatively that this is true, that the, the, the world is beautiful and God made it good. I can practically understand that it's better for me to go outside in the beautiful spring weather that God's given me rather than stay in my dorm, right? But do I have the imaginative intellect and capacity to see myself in church or as a communion of persons, again, like saved through Christ as the body of Christ, where I allow myself in humility to say, you know what? I'm just like the little pinky, right? Or the spleen. Right? I'm probably a spleen in the body of Christ, right? But there are other people who are the mouth of Christ. Let's go to David, right? Let, what, what would the psalmist say when experiencing this beautiful weather? What does Father Hopkins say? Glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of a couple color as a brinded cow, for rose moles all in stipple upon trout that swim, fresh fire coal, chestnut falls, finches wings. Again, like that is so much better to articulate that. And what I'm doing then is exercising the whole of my human person, right, in imitation of Christ. And even if you're not quoting scripture, poetry and literature is preparatory for that life. That is, None of that could exist without us being made in the image of the word. None of that makes sense. So all of these, even if that author, even if that poet doesn't agree with you in your faith, if they wrote something that's good and it's true, then it's good and it's true. And it's going to bring you closer to Christ. The beautiful thing about all of this is that in, in the end, this is what we're called to, to emptying out of ourselves and allowing Christ to increase. And when Christ increase, there is the presence of the word. And if the word is not present in you, if you lack words, right, and if it's just emotion, then you're not imaging the logos. And I'm not rejecting emotion. What does poetry do? Pro poetry and music, right, especially when blended, properly harmonize, that is, the desires are then in order with your will, which are in order with your intellect, and the whole of you is made finally complete. And the, the discontent that so many of you perhaps feel, I would argue, comes not because you're not going to church enough, although maybe for some of you. No, I'm just messing with you. Maybe it's not, it's not necessarily that you're not going to church enough. Maybe it's not that you're not reading it. It's not that you're not going to school enough, right? The speculative capacity, the practical capacity. My final question to you is, where is your imagination? Where is the poetry inside you that can respond not only with joy to life's triumphs, but can also then give words to your sorrow and pain? And so think back then, as we come to Easter and we come to you know, the remembrance of Good Friday, think that, you know, again, the act of salvation is accomplished on the cross through Christ reciting the Psalms. 
So the, the liturgy that's affected there is poetry. The word, which again, unique for the biblical narrative, speaks forth creation, speaks forth on the cross a new creation as well. And the mode and the way of doing that is through poetry. So if you think that poetry is just this lame thing that only certain people do, then I am so sorry for you living in a world, in a culture, in a society that has shunted it off to the side, right? So pick up a poetry book, pick up the Psalms, and, and get reading. So I think we have uh, a few minutes now for Q&A. Uh, yes. Well, okay, it, it gets it gets complicated, right? So again, in scholastic philosophy, it's a question of whether beauty itself can be a transcendental, right? So that, again, there's that. Another one would be being is a transcendental. Another idea that you find in Thomistic philosophy is rays, that is thingness of things. So it's complicated. Um, sorry, I didn't let you even finish your question. I'm going to... Can I write this question? I've heard it in the first three, but if you could explain what the point is. Is that it's the one point to God, or is there... Okay, yeah, that's... A, sorry, yeah, um, I should have let you finish. My apologies. Um, so if you look at the pre-Socratic philosophers, this is the one of the first things that's understood in philosophy, and it's really been overshadowed in the 20th and 21st century and again, like this is, uh, this would be goes into conversations about Descartes and other problems of modernity. Um, but there's been really an overshadowing of the one as the transcendental, and understanding that oneness and unity is the um, is this transcendent principle, right? That is inherent in things. Um, so in the God of the Philosophers, that oneness doesn't necessarily have to be the Christian God, right? So to be clear about this. And this is, again, where the Summa Theologiae can take you, right? Because in the beginning of it, he's just going over the God of the philosophers, which is, again, you have to accept, there's a lot of things that we believe as, as Christians that come from revelation. But there's certain things that if you if you exercise your, your speculative intellect, you can come to grasp the truth of. And I can come to grasp the truth that God is one, right? So there's a oneness to God. Because, again, the other capacities of God, that he's good, right? And that he's not just good, but he is goodness itself and all goodness derives from him. Well, how could, how could I have more than one goodness, which is the source of all goodness, right? So there's sort of a, a law of non-contradiction, which would be broken there. So there, the, the oneness principle um, is in fact um, precedes even arguably the other transcendentals. And this is one of the, the sad things about a lot of like Christian philosophy and everything going around today that people love to throw out like on school. You see this like on school crests and things like the good, the true, the beautiful, right? And we forget about the one. And I think a lot of like the disorders that we see in Christian society is because we don't have that desire that Paul has, right? Or, or that Christ speaks of in the gospel, right? I long to gather you up, right? And, and to bring you into my oneness is what, is what he desires, but also unity is not uniformity, to understand that. Um, John Paul II, St. John Paul II, has a great quote about that, right? That again the, the, again, the body is one, but it's not uniform, right? 
Uh, in fact, uh, it's kind of terrifying when things are uniform. Like when you think about like people lately have been talking about like angels with, with uh, you know, the, the, the biblical images of angels with eyes everywhere. If you had eyes everywhere, right, that is, that is terrifying, right? And of course, they're spirits, so we understand they're not actually eyes everywhere. But again, if you were all like um, nose, right? The, oh my gosh. Like again, like oh, the beauty of this person who walks in here is all one nose, right? Again, the unit, unity and uniformity are not the, the same, right? And so understanding the distinction there. Do we have any others? Um, I'm going to let, uh, sorry, your name is? Okay, great. What do you got? Just a practical side. Are there any uh, poets who recommend you Yes. Uh, <laughs> So see me after this, and I'll give you a long laundry list. I think, um, again, it depends on, like, um, there's a certain amount of taste that goes into this, and there's an acquisition of taste, right? Um, and so there's things that, that um, again, like, in the beginning, it might be good for you, just like a toddler, to eat, like, mac and cheese and hot dogs, right? But eventually, you're going to move on to things like sushi, right? Uh, now, I don't think many three-year-olds like sushi, or if you did, you're, you're pretty bougie. Right. Uh, but um, there's certain poets, I would say, who are good, like and they're just good. Like and, and all of us, even after we've moved on to like finer things. Right. We still like a like, good like mac and cheese, like fresh off the stove. Right. There's just something about it. That's great. Right. I would say someone like A. Hausman, fantastic for that. Right. But then there's certain other poets that are a little more refined. But again, like it, it takes practice the same way that like if you just like bring someone to church. Right. And you just bring them to church without any other sort of context. And you like, and you come afterwards and, like, you know, it's a donut Sunday or whatever. And you're like, man, wasn't that great? Like, they have none of the context to understand anything that was happening in that worship service, right? So you're not presenting the gospel to them, right? There's no Emmaus moment of you explaining anything. You're just like, here you are. Like, this, this is it, right? And so I'd say literature can be like that as well. That there's certain good poets that are introductory. Everyone would do well to read Shakespeare, Everyone would do well to read people like A.E. Hausman and Keats, right? But then there are other ones like W.H. Auden or Frost, who, um, again, Frost, you can read at any level, but he's got a nuance to him that I think most people don't understand at first. So, um, yes. Um, I guess kind of discussing the importance of the logos and the spoken word, what, how do you interact with the existential idea that belief is only found in and you can only see what people truly believe. Okay. Um, so I'm going to go fall back on my transcendentals again, right? And again, understanding that, like, um, that being, right? Again, one of the other transcendentals that we get tossed around is being, right? And this is where we come this with, with Aristotle as well. That, in fact, the, um, the resting capacity, right, of the thing in itself right, is actually the greater one. Um, let me put it this way. Um, there's a, a very short treatise by Aristotle called the De Anima, on the soul. <clears throat> when he comes to understand the human person and the intellectual capacities of the human person and the greatness of the human person, right? So again, he, um, where's that, um, that chart? Right, so the vegetative powers, we don't have to talk about that much, right? We understand that, right? The animal powers, great. But when it comes to the rational powers and their intellect, um, I can be thinking on something in particular, right? And the mind is where it acts. And so there's a certain greatness to the mind. And the human mind is like this great like space and time machine, 
because again, if you understand that the mind is where it acts, that means that I can think of a little cafe by the Colosseum in Rome and I can be there in some sense, right? I can also transport myself in time, both in the past and the future. But the greatest power and capacity of the, of the, of the person, right, resists, resides in the passive capacity of the, the rational faculty of the soul. That is, the mind can be all things. And once it is something, it's less than what it could be. So uh, I, I don't know if it's going too far what you're asking, but the value in the human person, again, again, if you want to go into phenomenology and you want to like speculate on like what human beings are based upon their actions or anything else like that, right? You can still have Christian phenomenologists, St. John Paul II, Edith Stein, right? Um, who you, and, and we could leave that aside for a second, but say, look, I can see the phenomenon right, of the capacity for people to think of pretty much anything. But then I must say that there exists some power, which is passive, right, which allows for the active thought. And that passive power, right, again, since we're not God, um, I'll put it this way, we're limited, right? We're, we're tied to this body and we're tied to the senses, and yet at the same time, there's this thing that's made for more that's inside of us that allows certain actions that don't fit with what the thing is. And so they point to something greater. And so I don't know if that answers your question in a good way, because I've never been asked that question in, in that exact term. I think I get where you're, you're going at. And maybe I'm taking you there in some ways, but is it a question of like, what is faith and whether someone has faith or not? Kind of. Uh, it's a little bit I've been interacting with people who say one thing and do another. Well, again, like, understanding that, like, again, there, there is a whole lot going on inside of you, right? And that um, you're not perfect yet. I'm not perfect yet. Uh, if you're talking about, I think, again, it comes to moral training of the human person, right? Um, and part of what poetry does, to bring it back to the, the subject of lecture, part of what poetry does is it implants in you words and thoughts that can stand in place so that when an occasion happens, you know what to do so that they train you. Uh, so again, that's part of our learning. The, the, the reason human beings are able to do all, everything that we can do is because we are able to learn from others. We don't have to invent everything over again each time with each individual. It's not like each of us individually has to invent the wheel or the use of fire, right, or clickers, right? Because we can rely on other people. Um, and that comes to moral actions as well, right? So part of our moral formation, it, no, not everyone has to be a Descartes and go off into the woods and rediscover, right, everything about theology and, and philosophy and the moral life. Right. That is a large part of your moral life could, can and should be acquired through other people. Now, again, like there could be bad influences around you, which would lead you to bad beginnings of the moral life. But on the other hand, um, you have a rational intellect, which is able to look around and say, well, these people aren't getting the thing that they say that they want. So I probably shouldn't do what they want. 
let's go and look at someone else and then imitate them. So again, like, again, what the Christian's called to, and again, remembering that next to the Bible, one of the most popular books in, in the history of Christianity was the imitation of Christ, and that was a common practice for a lot, is to understand that, like, the Christian vocation is one of imitation. So it's, again, this understanding of the mimetic nature of the human person as an imitative animal, which we've lost, I would, I would argue, in our uh, understanding of the spiritual life. All right, thank you. Thank you.